0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura aarons and this is The Anxious Achiever, we look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. This week, psychologist Lisa Orbe-Austin joins me to share what her research has shown about how to get rid of imposter syndrome. Yep, I said it. You can actually eradicate this thing, Austin says. To me, it starts with a question. Who are you working so hard for? Are you working so hard to prove something to people in your past, to prove to your peers you're one of them? Are you working so hard because it's all you know how to do? So many of us can relate to imposter feelings, the idea that you feel like a fraud, that you're faking it, and that any minute now, people will be able to see the real you. It's a concept that dates back to the 1970s, when two psychologists began thinking about the idea, and it occurs frequently among high achievers who can't believe or internalize their success, no matter what level they reach. And of course, this can cause anxiety or even depression. And so I wanted to speak to someone who could explain the relationship between mental health, imposter syndrome, and how we do or don't succeed at work. Lisa Orbe Austin is an executive coach and psychologist, and she's an expert on imposter syndrome. Here's my conversation with her. It's funny. I mean, you talk about imposter syndrome a lot.
0: (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Almost obsessively so.
1: Um, What are some of the misconceptions that you find people have about it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people think it's all about self doubt. Um, so it's solely self doubt. And if you doubt yourself, then you have imposter syndrome. And there's a far more involved way that we look at imposter syndrome. And it's not just about self doubt. So I do think that's a misconception. You often hear people say that only women have imposter syndrome or stop pathologizing women with imposter syndrome. We know that not to be true from the research that there's, you know, plenty of data to show. It's inconclusive that women actually experience it more often. And many of the data has shown recently that that actually men experience it as often. It's not There's no significant difference. It just shows up a little differently. So you hear that. You hear a lot lately around oppression causes imposter syndrome. There's no data to suggest that whatsoever. Um, not that it doesn't sort of exacerbate or trigger or benefit from it, but it definitely mm-hmm. is not the initial cause of it. And so there are a lot of different um, myths, I think, that float around, especially because it is so popular.
1: What are ways that men might express it differently than women?
0: Yeah. So for men, what we see is that men tend to affiliate with peers that are less successful than they are because they are aiming more toward mastery in scenarios. and As a result, they take less risks and have to take less risks. And um, we also see them pursue careers, certain careers less often. So in STEM, men who have high imposter syndrome don't tend to actually pursue careers in STEM. So we see certain um, phenomenon with men that we don't necessarily see with women. So as a result of them experiencing it less often, they may talk about it less often. They may be triggered less often. They may experience a frequency less often, but they still are mm-hmm. living with the phenomenon.
1: And it sounds like they find safety behaviors almost. Yes, <laughs> To prevent that imposter syndrome getting triggered. Yep.
0: Yeah, but it has a definite impact on their careers as a result. Wow.
1: How is imposter syndrome different than social anxiety?
0: So imposter syndrome, you can have social anxiety and have imposter syndrome, and you can, you know, not have social anxiety and still have imposter syndrome. So it's, a, it's about this experience of feeling that you are a fraud. And that, as a result of this fear that you are going to be revealed as a fraud, you overwork or self-sabotage to engage in that. So there are components around social aspects that are re- really relevant. For example, the idea that um, you know people are judging you or evaluating you that look very similar to social anxiety. But there are also components that have nothing to do with social anxiety that may also be reflective. For example, like overworking is not necessarily a social anxiety component that you see that's very kind of common with imposter syndrome. Right.
1: It's funny. I was invited to join this sort of exclusive high-end like salon thing for writers, mm-hmm. and I I when I had to write my hello, it's an online group, I I said, I have so much imposter syndrome simply writing this email. And one of the most famous members of the group wrote, having imposter syndrome is a prerequisite for joining
0: this group. That makes me want to cry.
1: Well, I actually, I thought it was awesome because I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like all these famous well-respected summer household names, wealthy people, they have imposter syndrome amongst each other? Like, does it ever go away? <laughs> but it That's makes what you makes want to makes cry. cry. Okay, <laughs> because I okay. think
0: that that we have come to now almost see it as a badge of honor. And I want mm-hmm. people to recognize that you can actually eradicate this thing. It doesn't have to live in your life forever. Um, and that it doesn't have to be how we now see ourselves as being successful is that, oh, I'm always going to have imposter syndrome and that's just it, mic drop. Like, it really is important to me to, to help people to understand you don't have to live with this forever. There are very concrete ways to overcome it. And yes, like, I think it's really important to find community. And when you see people that you admire and respect, Really share that they have imposter syndrome, it can feel so connecting, but I just don't want us to agree to live with it forever. Right, right.
1: So, does imposter syndrome cause people anxiety, or do, are people with anxiety more likely to have imposter syndrome? It's an interesting
0: question. I think that, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that it's correlated with anxiety. So, we know there's a relationship. Do we know that the directionality of that relationship? I don't think we do. But I think we know that there is a relationship between imposter syndrome and anxiety. We actually know there's a relationship between imposter syndrome and depression and also imposter syndrome and burnout and self-esteem. So we know that there's a correlate to those things. We don't know which, which like chicken and egg, we don't know which is causing which. Um, We just know that there's a connection and a relationship between them.
1: What, what is the relationship with depression specifically?
0: So for example, um, when somebody experiences, um, You know, they make some kind of mistake in their career and they're experiencing this feeling of like, everyone now knows that I don't belong here. Sometimes it can actually sink people into depression, depending on how big that mistake is, how significant it feels, how impactful it feels on their lives. It can sink people into a very circumstantially driven depression. A researcher, Kevin Coakley, just recently discovered too, is that for Black people who experience imposter syndrome, there's actually a correlation between imposter syndrome and discrimination-related depression. Um, so these are experiences of depression that are connected to being discriminated against, which is a, a really important, I think, and significant finding, um, that's really recent.
1: Can you describe a scenario in which that might play out at work and trigger the feelings?
0: Sure. I think, you know, if you're, if you're at work and you're experiencing constant microaggressions or even not even constant, but microaggressions or microinvalidations, or you feel like you are being isolated and it feels very much connected to your identity or your race, I think it can really help you to feel alienated and feel like, you know, do I really belong here? Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not a good fit. Maybe, you know, I'm here because of my identity or because of some other discriminatory kind of way of thinking about, you know, your competencies that can really lead you to feeling really down, really sad, really feeling like, you know, what am I doing here? What, what's happening with my life? So I do think those kinds of experiences can really be very impactful. And I think when you're experiencing imposter syndrome, they can be even heightened by that.
1: Interesting. And it it all cycles together. Yeah. What is the imposter cycle? I think listeners would really benefit from understanding that and also maybe the deep roots of imposter syndrome.
0: Yeah. So imposter syndrome is an experience at every moment of your waking life. You're typically triggered by something. So the common triggers are things like a new job, a new project, an opportunity that is complex, that has many places where you can go wrong or be exposed. Um, something that you feel rusty in. Uh, so these kinds of things can be the triggers that elicit the imposter syndrome. Then once you get triggered, you then have a performance anxiety. As a result of that performance anxiety, you then deal with either overwork, where you're trying to overfunction to, to hide the fraudulence, or self-sabotage. And the self-sabotage mm-hmm. for people with imposter syndrome tends to look like long periods of procrastination followed by short, intense bursts of overwork. Um, you're going to get the thing done. You're just going to do it in this very intensive way. Then you get feedback. The feedback is either positive and then you ignore it and move on and get caught in the cycle again, or it's it's mixed and there's some negative feedback. And then all the negative feedback you hyper-focus on, try to over-correct for, correct for. And don't bother internalizing any of the positive things and then get caught in this cycle all over again. So that every time you experience a new project, new experience, new job, it it starts all over again because you haven't bothered internalizing any of the positive things that that have occurred as a result of the the experience. And you think
1: that the overwork is the cure. Yes, you believe that. You
0: believe that overwork or overfunctioning will solve for that because you're not good enough. So you must do double the work, triple the work, quadruple the work in order to prove that you actually do belong.
1: I think it's interesting
0: that people procrastinate when they have imposter syndrome. It's the anxiety. The anxiety typically drives the, and it's two things. It's like the anxiety and the perfectionism to tend to drive it. So this idea that you're feeling super anxious, it becomes hard to do anything. Oftentimes avoidance is a very common anxiety response. And then also to this idea that it must be perfect because perfectionism also underlies imposter syndrome. And if it's not perfect, then it gets really, it gets really hard to then think about if I can't do it perfectly, if I can't do it, can't give it everything in this moment, or if I can't get my head around how it goes perfectly, I can't start. And so hmm. both of those things, I think, tend to drive the, the self-sabotage and procrastination. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days.
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If
0: you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: Why did you start to study imposter syndrome?
0: Because I experienced it myself. (laughs) As as many of the things that we study are very self-referential, but I think... For me, graduating from my PhD program, I went to Columbia. And I think when I finished my PhD program, I felt more insecure and more raw and more vulnerable and less qualified than I probably ever oh had felt God. in my entire career. <laughs> that makes me sad, Lisa. It, it was sad. It was terribly <laughs> sad. Um, But I think, you know, I think my program did a lot to unravel us in a lot of ways and didn't really build us up in a lot of ways that it probably should have. And I think mm. as a result, I left feeling like, I don't know if I really deserve this degree. I, I don't know if I really can be out there doing the things I want to do. So I'll just take whatever comes my way. And that's what I did. And I ended up taking a job that was super toxic. My boss and the culture was super toxic. And I just, I because of my apostasy syndrome, I was frozen. I could not leave the job. My, my husband would be like, uh, can you just start applying? Could you try something? I just felt literally frozen. Um, I just felt like this is the best I was gonna get. This is all that I deserved. And then he did something that like woke me up, my toxic boss, which is like, we were sitting in a room full of like senior, it was a senior leadership meeting, we're all women. And there was music playing in the background. And he, someone asked, what is this music that's playing in the background? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And in that one moment, I was like, I can't live like this anymore. This is like destroying me. And I packed my office up that weekend and quit on the spot. No two weeks notice, no nothing on Monday. And he threatened me and threatened my career. And At that moment, I was like, I really need to tackle this because it's destroying everything I've worked so hard for. And that's when I started to really face it for myself. And it made me really passionate to help other people face it for themselves. But I know how powerfully this can be impacting your life, you know, firsthand. Did
1: you feel the imposter feelings as you were packing up your office or were you just so angry? No, I was
0: in a rage. (laughs) I was packing (laughs) that office in a rage. I didn't, I, I think before. Before I had that moment, I was very fearful and, and very fearful of quitting. I felt all the imposter feelings like I'll never get another job or, you know, this is better the devil you know than the devil you don't and all these kinds of really de- destructive thoughts. But I think in that moment, I was super clear like what this was doing to me. And so I, I packed up in a rage you know, and I was like, I'm out of here and never again. And, um And so I think I was in a much more clear headed space even though I was rageful. <laughs>
1: Do you think that there's something in your background that made you more vulnerable to imposter syndrome than maybe other people who also worked for the toxic boss?
0: I mean, I think, you know, I will say that I think a lot of, a lot of the women in that room were dealing with, were dealing with imposter syndrome and were sort of Mm. feeling like that because they were some really bright and amazing women in that room who also felt like this is all they could get. Um, Mm. so I do think I wasn't alone, but I do think that, Yes, there are common, you know, there are some things that I think happened in my early childhood experiences that where it comes from that I think made it set up the perfect dynamic for it, that like, this is, it's not a surprise I'm sitting, you know, I was sitting with imposter syndrome. So yeah, absolutely. Do you still ever feel imposter syndrome? Yes, I get triggered. I think one one of the things that's really important though to recognize is that I get triggered, but I don't choose the same behaviors that I once did. So I might get triggered for something. Um And... You know, feel like, oh my God, do I really belong here? Am I the right person? Blah, blah, blah. But instead of actually doing what I used to do, like overfunction, feel insecure, kind of do a lot of the behaviors that made me feel less than or maybe even behave less than, I don't do that anymore. I stop myself. I'm like, okay, what do I need right now? Okay, what what do I need to help myself to rethink what's happening here? How do I make sure that I don't overfunction or over or overengage here. How do I not self-sabotage? I really am very proactively dealing with it. And I think that's the key piece is like you're never going to stop being triggered for it. The idea is that you're going to be able to stop, pause and do something very, very different than you once did. Right.
1: You can't control the triggers. No, you can't. And what's the relationship between the external validation and the imposter cycle or, or acting out the imposter syndrome? How do you change from wanting External validation to seeking intrinsic validation, because that must be a part of it.
0: Yes, definitely. It's very, very central to imposter syndrome. Oftentimes we're very much caught up with uh, what other people want from us, what other people are thinking of us, and how do we help to kind of meet those needs. And I think one of the things that I've seen, you know, that's incredibly important to kind of help shift the dynamic with the external validation is really helping people to see themselves for the first time. And to really mm. be able to appreciate themselves and see the beauty in themselves for the first time. I, I think that's one of the things I love about being a psychologist is that, you know, when someone comes to me in pain, whether they're taking my class or whether they're, you know, doing something related to just their clinical work, I often can see where they can go. You know, I see the vision of their future, you know, and I can see what's possible. And they don't see that oftentimes. That's why they're coming to me. And I think mm. helping them to see what I see You know, and, and actually having them articulate that, having them fight for themselves, having them defend themselves, having them really be like, I deserve this. Do you know who I am? Um, there's, there's such a beauty in that. I think it helps them let go of seeking the external validation when they can really, you know, fill their own cups with ideas around who they are, what they deserve, what, what's, what they imagine and dream. And so I think that's really very central is to replace the external validation with your own. True vision of who you are and who you've crafted over this time, so.
1: before we get to tactical matters, there's this obviously a systemic issue when it comes to imposter syndrome. I think we tend to take it on ourselves and think, I am the imposter when there are a whole
0: systems set around making us feel this way yeah
1: how does that how does that work?
0: You know one of the things that I often talk about is that yeah the system. The system feeds this. And so systems that are toxic, that expect that work is your only focus, that there is no, that there should be no real healthy boundaries between work and your life. Um, places that have particular leaders that are narcissistic or create codependence or really kind of, uh, you know, allow for abusive behaviors in the workplace. Um, these things all set up ripe dynamics for imposter. And I think one of the things I often think is important is to recognize that oftentimes we say the system and it makes us feel like the system is outside of us. But if we are part of that system, we are, we are also, we, we make up that system. That system can't run without individuals. And, and in thinking about how we individually contribute to maintaining these toxic systems and how we can actually break some of that from our own individual behavior is so important. I think it empowers us to understand the agency we have within systems, you know, especially, you know, at all levels of, of power and influence. And I think it's mm. so important to really to see the fact that you can actually change, I mean, we talk about this a lot in family therapy—that one person can change a system in a family. If one person in that family gets healthy and kind of focuses on their own well-being, it changes all the dynamics. And so, I think the same is true of larger systems. That if there is coalition, if individuals create coalition of change, things have to change, and so, or else the system falls apart. And so, I think it's so important to recognize that we also have individual influence, even in really powerful systems.
1: Because also, if we're sitting there having imposter syndrome, not leaving the toxic job, we're upholding the system.
0: Yeah. And if we're overworking and doing the the work of two or three people in that toxic system, we are upholding the system. It's a
1: cycle because then, of course, we get rewarded for the overwork.
0: Yeah. But the consequence, what we're giving up for the overwork is immeasurable, whether it's the loss of our own dreams and our own wants, whether it is our burnout, whether it is our depression or anxiety, like the sacrifice for whatever reward you're getting is is never worth it.
1: Gosh, you know, I've had a real light bulb moment in my own life during this talk, which is that the group that I mentioned, you know, where everyone has imposter syndrome, I've been avoiding it. I've been acting out avoidance. I read it obsessively. I think about responding or speaking up when they have talks, but I can't. And I, I just leave it I just avoid it. I just yeah. I feel frozen.
0: Yeah. I think that's really common. And I think one of the things that's really important um, is is the recognition, right? Because in the recognition of what's happening, you can then do something different. And I think one of the things that happens when you have imposter syndrome is you feel like you can't contribute to anywhere unless you have it a hundred percent buttoned up or you're going to say something that people are going to go, wow, or that was so interesting. And really it's okay just to contribute. And, and if nobody notices, it's fine. You know, my husband always says some things and I was, I was used to have this experience when I teach and I'd be like, I had one kid or two kids and they weren't paying attention. And he would be like, it doesn't matter if, if no one is paying attention, but one person is listening. That's all that matters. Um, as if one person is learning, that's all that we care about. If there's extra, that's awesome. Um, and I really always had this perception that it had to be 100% or nothing. Um, mm. And I think it's really recognizing that you can contribute in all kinds of ways that you have to take these risks to be out there um, in ways that, you know, might not go so well or might be mediocre. And it's okay. It doesn't mean that we are <laughs> mediocre. It just means that particular interaction was just meh, nah, you know. So
1: so the silly comment I make to the email thread won't be judged like yeah, the best novel exactly. of all time.
0: <laughs> exactly. And especially because it's a writing group, right? Then your writing feels like you're kind of under a microscope. Um so This reminds me one time of like, I posted something on LinkedIn, and I had made a typographical error. And this is in the beginning of when I had re- just released the book. And somebody wrote in the comments like, you know, how dare you purport yourself to be an author and make a typographical error in a in a post on LinkedIn. And I thought to myself, Come on. that's my worst fear, like that I would be judged for like, you know, what I'm writing and to kind of evaluate me at such a high level. And I just remembered in that moment thinking, it's not about it's not that's not about me, that's about her and whatever she's going through, that's kind of causing her to do that. And it's really was really helpful for me to separate from that and not to be like, Oh, my God, how did I how did I make that error? What's wrong with me? How could I do that? You know, Um, Well, talk us
1: through that. Talk us through that. So you got triggered. Yep. Because that person said something that hit you Mm -hmm. hard, but then what?
0: And then my first instinct was to correct the mistake. (laughs) So I would erase it (laughs) uh, and maybe delete her comment. Um, But instead of what I did was I left it. I left the, I left the typographical error. I left the comment. And I remember stopping myself and really allowing myself to process what I was, th- what thoughts I was having, like the automatic, we call them automatic ne- negative thoughts. And I was thinking things like, you know, how could I have made that mistake? It was so sloppy if I hadn't rushed, if I hadn't done this, like maybe people won't buy the book as a result of fi- finding that I make typographical errors. And then I was like, hold on a second. Is that true? Like, you know, is, is that true? And, and then I started to evaluate whether the, these kind of statements were true or not. And then I was like, no, they're not true. No one's going to stop because I made a one type of graphical error. Even if I made a hundred, it wouldn't make a difference. And so I think, you know, it allowed me to kind of then kind of distance myself and externalize that that feedback was really not about me. Because, you know, I have other people who are competent in my life that evaluate my writing, like my editor and my my partner, who's my co-writer, who, you know, who, you know. Who, who can give me good feedback and honest feedback about my writing skill, that this wasn't about that. It was really about some attempt to be punitive or mean or whatever was going on in their experience, but not, take, not internalizing that was my job, you know, in that moment. Wow.
1: So if someone's listening to this and they're feeling in awe of you, how can they, what's the first step? They're feeling imposter syndrome when they walk
0: into their job. What's the first step? I mean, the first step is to recognize it and to have compassion for yourself and to know that it can be different, I think, and to to recognize that some of this is, is you know, practice skill and some of it, you know, is going to be kind of a commitment to kind of wanting something different. Um, and that, you know, one of the things that becomes really important is starting to recognize what are some of the thoughts that you're having that are generated by sort of this experience of imposter syndrome and what are they saying to you and just, I would just write them down. And then ask yourself are they true and where's the evidence where's the data and might there be another point of view and can you ask somebody you trust is there another point of view and like start to get it outside of your head and start to get it on talking to other people and outside of you um, which can be so important like because oftentimes we suffer on about with this alone and it's so secretive and it's so quiet because we feel like if we tell somebody then they'll sure you know surely know we are a fraud so I think it's so important to just start to kind of have these conversations, really do some thinking about how it shows up, um, and really question it. And
1: also you talked earlier about sort of playing out what's the worst. I call it the so what game. Yeah. Like what, what is the worst that's going to happen if you flub your line or yeah. whatever it is?
0: Yeah. And starting to real. I mean, and one of the things that's been really helpful for me as I recover from imposter syndrome is I just really start to accept myself. You know, you know I'm not a perfect, you know, Public speaker, and I'm not a perfect writer. I make a lot of typographical errors. I, you know, use a lot of fillers, and I, you know, I repeat words. I do all these kinds of things, but I've come to be like, this is who I am right now, and that's okay. You know, as long as people get the the idea and they get sort of like the main ideas of what I'm communicating, that's all that really matters. Per- I'm not heading for perfection. Perfection is a myth, and it's it's just destructive to me. I'm just going to be who I am, and that's all I can I can be. But it's it's taken me a long time to get there, but I really have a deep appreciation for me. Even when I screw up, like I'll screw up on a post and people will criticize it and be like, you are made a mistake. And somebody said the other day, like, yeah, I thought you wanted to be professional. If you want to be professional, you, you would make best of mistakes. And I'm like, I am professional. <laughs> what? Who are these people? <laughs> Social. But you know, like, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of triggers and you just have to really kind of always remind yourself of the work that you're doing and what really matters in that work.
1: Right. Lisa, thank you so much.
0: You're so welcome.
1: That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krenko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. You can tweet me at MoraAM or reach me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I promise I'll respond. If you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From LinkedIn, this is Mora Aarons Mealy.